Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Aileen Beek is a writer and an actor and joins us to talk about a new play called Jack and Millie, which is on at the Saltwater Community Centre Amphitheatre over in Point Cook. Aileen, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Richard. Now, I'm intrigued by this production. It's an exploration of living with cancer, but from the perspective of somebody who has essentially personified their cancer, given it a name, the name being Jack, uh, and kind of talking to the cancer in a, in a way of dealing with it. Where did this idea come from? Well, it, it was actually born through a discussion with my fellow actor, Phil Cameron Smith, who was talking to me about how I kept positive through the diagnosis. And, and, it was just, and I explained to him that it was like I had this weird friend sitting on my shoulder that I had to get used to being around and not freaking out by that. And that's like a constant, once you're diagnosed, like for me, it's like there's lots of triggers that, oh, I've got a headache. Does that mean I'm getting a brain tumor? You know, and over, and then you had to sort of, it became something more than just a little thoughts in my head. And so it was like this thing sitting on my shoulder. And then the more we talked, and even to a couple of other people, they actually had named this this entity, whatever you call it. And so I called mine Jack. And he was uh, sometimes, oh, sorry. He sometimes gives me courage, and he sometimes is my um, inner voice for a lot of the things that I would not normally say out loud. Um, so that that's where the comedy comes from. But he also uh, helps me get on with things. So, yeah. It sounds like that experience in some ways is almost liberating, being able to think of uh, something that is afflicting you uh, as almost outside of you. It's not part of you, it's an outsider, so you can project onto it, you can externalise it, uh, and in some ways perhaps kind of deal with it better by going, well, this isn't me, this is Jack. Jack's the problem. Yeah, and I think that's exactly, that's right. It's, it's also how we mentally get on top of things. So this particular thing is about cancer, but really would relate to a lot of things, like if you're suddenly diagnosed with, I don't know, diabetes, or, or and you can really sort of do a bit of self-wallowing <laughs> and, and start, you know, just digging, going. So it's a matter of, if this feels like there's something there kind of as your weird friend, it helps you. And it certainly helped me, and I still think, you know, my Jack is still around and it's been 10 years. <laughs> In terms then of creating the play, I'm intrigued, uh, was this a cathartic process? Was it a liberating process to be able to genuinely embody this voice that has accompanied you for a decade? Yeah, absolutely. And look, to be honest, right at the start, I wasn't really sure because a lot of it's like, oh, I have to go back into that space again. Um, often you try and keep away from it. But then it makes you 
face it more realistically. So I've sort of come out the other end. And in fact, the Nigel Sutton, who's directing it, has also gone through a cancer and not long ago has had chemotherapy. And he was loved the script, but was initially, for that very reason, reluctant to direct it. And then we did a workshop and, and he said it's been cathartic for him as well. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, it has. Facing things ultimately really helps once you get over that hurdle, but it's just scary in the moment. And also then the fact that there's kind of lashings of comedy in this production is presumably then also going to get people to come to see it who, if, if you say to them, come and see a play about cancer, they might normally back away slightly going, oh, oh I think I've got something else on tonight that doesn't sound <laughs> quite like my cup of tea. Whereas explaining to them that this is uh, a work that balances kind of drama with kind of with significant amounts of comedy and... and uh, is will then perhaps help not only encourage them to come along, but encourage them to think about conversations they've had in the past or may have in the future with friends and family members who are diagnosed with cancer. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that would be one of the biggest challenges of this play was that as soon as I mentioned the word cancer, I thought people are just going to go, oh, uh, yeah, no, I'm actually on holiday then. Oops. But, and so the challenge has been, this is a really positive outlook on, and a very unique perspective on cancer. And it's, people will laugh that have, you know, that have had no connection, which is probably hardly anybody, because we all know somebody who's got it, I think. But um, the comedy comes through the really human aspect of it, where you're digging deep and doing things that people go, oh, I do that. Um, And they'll relate to it. That's, our aim is not to just connect with people who have cancer. In fact, that's not it at all. It's really for anybody just going through difficult stuff in your head that you have to get used to and finding a really positive way of... And even if it's just laughing with us, you know, even that is enough, you know, just get there and have a really engage with the characters, you know, that's, um, they'll get a lot from that point of view as well. Now, Elaine, as a playwright, I'm curious to know about your development process. How how many drafts of the play have you been through? How many workshops, for example? Because often, as audience members, we see the finished product, and it uh, we kind of we it's like the tip of the iceberg. There's so much behind a new Australian piece of theatre that we don't see. Well, you you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. This has had about 5,000 different versions and really it's the most collaborative writing piece I've ever done and it came about through COVID and one of uh, we started doing a lot of Zoom sessions and working through it and the script morphed in many ways. Really it was about like what am I trying to say? What's, because the, the two people that I was initially collaborating with which was Phil and David Trednick. So David he's gone through cancer himself and he asked really good questions and gave really good input so we kept going ah let's this is important this is this is going to make more sense because it still has to be a story and then the director came on board and you know he's put his stamp all over it and that then has morphed it into something a little bit different, even though the heart of the story is still there. So, yeah, no, it's been the most developed script I've ever done. For, in, for the right reasons, I think the end result is amazing. So we have no... It's even the actual delivery of the piece is 
done paired back incredibly. So we have just two boxes on stage and one scarf. And it's all done through our movement and dialogue and performance. And, you know, it, that's been super challenging. But the ultimate aim is to tell the story, it's, you know, uh, get the audience, yeah. Yeah, the, the sheer fact that you can, you can strip away everything else, uh, as you say, just kind of uh, a couple of boxes and so forth uh, as as props, it means that things won't get in the way of the story, things won't get in the way of the characters and the drama. The flip side of that is, uh, for the actors, there's nothing to hide behind. There are no kind Exactly. Of... <laughs> there's no props, oh there's goodness. no kind of dramatic costume changes to, to distract the audience if they flub their lines, if anything like that, or if they're not feeling 100% in their performance that night. It's all on them. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I keep saying absolutely because everything you're asking is is spot on to what we're actually going through. And it's it feels as raw as, oh, my goodness, boots and all, here I am. And you, we don't leave the stage and, you know, when we first started, because there's no natural prompts that you would get from a stage, like, oh, I'm going to drink out of that glass, so there it is. There's no glass. So it's all really embedding the scene in your head, but then making sure the audience gets it. They'll know straight away where we are. You know, and it's, yeah, it's, my goodness, been challenging. <laughs> is it going to be challenging for you to perform in your own work? That, yes, actually. Um not so much because Nigel's a very strong director, so I've just completely put my ha- my faith in his what he's doing, and he's um, the main part of it is the story is so connected, and even though to, to my own story, um, even though there's a lot of comedy, as I'm saying, and the very the embarrassing moments, and, you know, she's such a klutz at times, and there's times that are really poignant, but I think that's, and that's a, <gasps> but that's going to be a good thing, a nice contrast to the rest of the play, but, um, yeah, just, look, just having a really strong director, I've just occasionally go, oh, I didn't really, did I write it that way? And then I'll just shut up and do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Elaine Beek about her play Jack and Millie, directed by Nigel Sutton, which is on from the 17th until the 27th of February at the Saltwater Community Centre Amphitheatre in Point Cook, uh, presented by Essence Productions. And, Elaine, you mentioned earlier that this is the most collaborative writing piece you've ever done, but I get the sense that Essence Productions, your company, is a very collaborative kind of process to begin with anyway. You've talked in the past that you work with a team of actors and a team of crew uh, so I get the feeling yes. that, that there's a familiarity with the, the, the group that you work with, regardless of whether you're presenting a new work like this in Point Cook or whether you're kind of uh, performing at a more familiar space to you, such as Werribee Park, where you're, I believe, yeah. the resident uh, independent company. Yes, up until COVID. <laughs> um, no, we're still there. We just can't actually perform. Uh, yeah, everything I write goes through a rigorous development process. With And when I say my team, I have a group of actors that I've worked with for many, many years, many of them skilled writers, directors. Um, and I have, I think... A fairly, oh, I'm not sure. I, I would say I have a thick skin, but I kind of brace myself. Okay, here's my first draft. Give it to me. And, and they're super honest. Um, and I love 
I think the, as far as working in the arts, the development process is about my favourite thing. Just where you go, let's try this and it works. Or, nah, that was total crap. So, And then let's move on to this. I love that whole exploring different ideas. So, yeah, they're essential, an essential part of anything that I write are the actors that I work with who just bring so much wisdom and heart and funny and everything. <laughs> and it also sounds like you're very committed to the Western suburbs as well as a company that is your home and it's where you present work. Yeah, I mean, we did, we've toured uh, the last, our, my last sort of big play, for want of a better word, at Point of No Return, we toured that around and took that to New South Wales, but most of what we do is here. In fact, that was a challenge with this play was finding a space and uh, a performance space because the theatres, as you know, are not happening right now. So we actually did a lot of looking at trying out different spaces until we landed at the lovely little amphitheatre at Point Cook, which is run by your friend Bob Kerry Greve, and he's been super supportive. So the space, I, I think there's a death of, there's just not much happening in performing arts, certainly in Wyndham. Um, it's slowly changing, and it's a lot about just finding spaces that audiences can connect to, because I think a performance space is almost as important as the what you're about to experience. You know, you get connected with the people that gather there, the feel of the ambience, the quality of the work, even if you don't know exactly what's coming up. The pub next door, you have your dinner and before the show, it's all part of the experience. So I'm trying to find places in the West that I can build little audience followings. And Bob's been super supportive of the... Um, uh, the Saltwater Studio um, helping us make it work in that lovely little outdoor amphitheatre. And he's Scottish, so... <laughs> <laughs> I can see there's a parallel there. Uh, now, and also uh, the fact that it's in an outdoor amphitheatre makes it much more COVID-safe than gathering in an indoor well, space. So, yeah. So yeah, the, exactly. The play is called Jack and Millie, uh, written by Aileen Bick, who's also performing in it, on from the 17th to the 27th of February at the Saltwater Community Centre Amphitheatre, 153 Saltwater Promenade, Point Cook. You can jump online for more info, www.essenceproductions.com. Dot com dot au. Tickets are 35 bucks, uh, and the show's on Wednesdays to Saturdays, 8pm, and you can book also at essenceproductions.com.au. Aileen, thank you so much for joining us, and chookers for the season. Triple R. Claire Bartholomew and Daniel Tobias uh, have been performing together for bloody ages since, uh, what was it, 2006? Yeah, yeah. We met in 2005 and I think you probably saw us in the Melbourne Comedy Festival of Fringe in 2006. Yeah. Uh, so your alter egos um, in De Rottenpunkta are well known, but you're here to chat about a new show that you've uh, kind of devised and are performing at 45 downstairs. It's called The Anniversary, uh, in which you play uh, a married couple, Jim and Barb, who, after 50 years together, are basically ready to strangle one another. Daniel, is, we shouldn't r read this as a reflection of the professional relationship between the two of you? Uh, look, we're really, really good friends. Probably, I mean, you, I, I'd describe Claire as a bestie, you know, but like any people who spend a lot of time together 
you know, we have our moments, like when we have to pack a car for a tour or something like that, which <laughs> suitcase goes in first and, you know, stuff that isn't meaningful. Actually, surprisingly, the things that are meaningful in, in our lives, we actually get along really well with and we, we manage very, very well. You know? Trivial details yeah. that shit each other, yeah. So I think some of that is channelled into this performance as well as stories that we've had and, uh, and shared of our grandparents in relationships where they stayed together no matter what. Like their whole lives married maybe more than 50 years and no matter, you know, their behaviour was sometimes quite cruel to each other, but they, they stayed, stayed together. They loved each other, yeah. In a so we kind of, we were inspired, we've, we've been talking about this show for about 10 years in a way, the idea of it. So Claire, that notion of couples who stay together despite everything, and I've seen old, elderly couples like that, who, who really just seem to loathe each other at a fundamental level, but something keeps them together. And it, it can't be the kids because the kids have long since grown up and moved out. And maybe it's societal pressure or maybe they've just, what, just become so accustomed to one another that even though they drive one another crazy, that they can't imagine life without one another. Yeah, it's sort of that codependent, it's all we know, this is it, you know, till death do us part, really. And we'll, shit, we'll annoy each other and harbour on about things till death do us part. Even if uh, you're willingly thinking about causing one another's death. Yes. Yes, someone did describe the show last night online as mad, macabre and magical. So um, I quite like those three words at the moment. Yeah. So uh, you had the first preview of the anniversary last night. Uh, Now, as these characters, as Jim and Barb, talk to us about how you've kind of devised and created the show. Because clearly you have a a concept which, uh, Dan, you said was, what, almost 10 years old. It's been bouncing around as an idea. How did it go from that idea into the show that is now on at 45 Downstairs? We, um, about two years ago, we got a, a, a small grant and we approached uh, Peter Houghton, who's a um, very quite well-known director and actor in Melbourne, and we'd seen uh, a play of his that he'd written and was in called A Commercial Farce that was at the Malt House, and we'd always loved it. We didn't know him, and we kind of cold-called him and said, um, can we put you on our grant application? And then about, you know, eight months later, we were in a room with him and uh, um, and we just sort of started working, really. We did a showing then that was very different to the show now. And then we had the show ready. So it's really Peter, Dan and I have devised the show together. We had a version of the show ready for the Comedy Festival last March. We trialled it in America, in Albuquerque and LA, ready to come back for Comedy Festival. And then, of course, the pandemic hit... And it's fair to say I think we've changed every single scene. Every single scene has been rewritten except the very final scene, the, the ending we loved. And we just had nine months to think of, or a year now to think about it, and we've cha- rewritten the whole show. This version of the show that's uh, from a year ago, we actually saw Jim and Barb over 10 years and each anniversary and how their relationship, it kind of deteriorated over that time. But we just thought that if we just put it all in one afternoon, the stakes are much higher and it lends itself more to a farce. And um, yeah, that was exciting. It was an exciting thing. And then also bringing it into 45 downstairs rather than in a sort of comedy festival or fringe festival context 
Um, I think people's expectations of the production values at 45 downstairs is, you know, people want to see more stuff. <laughs> and, and also we didn't have the tight turnover that we would have. Yeah. So Peter Houghton had a concept for a, a set with six doorways um, so we could have entrances and exits. And so then it also became much more fast-like. Yeah, I'm just as soon as you said multiple doors, uh, the that classic French farce of one door slamming shut as another one slams open, and which means your timing, uh, you know, the the timing is everything in a farce. To a lo- well, not everything. The, the the comedy from the script is a large part of it as well, but the physicality, the timing, having Peter as a director, I would imagine, would help there because from what I've seen of uh, his past work, uh, physical comedy is a big part of it as well. A friend of mine yeah. worked with Peter years ago. And said, you know, the thing about Peter is he, he'll show you how to perform the scene. He'll play both parts and you watch him do it. And it'll be so funny. You'll think I'll never be able to do it just as well as he just did it then. And so he's, he understands the, the mathematics, the logic of jokes in, in, in a really clear way. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about the anniversary is, uh, I guess, the the generational aspect of it. Uh, the characters that you're playing, uh, Jim and Barb, are of a significantly older generation than yourselves. Is this a chance to, I don't know, kind of get something back at baby boomers or what's going on there? Look, it, that, we have we have sort of said that they're baby boomers from Baldwin, but um, I mean, it's Fair to say, we don't talk in the show. We, it's a non-verbal show. We only say one word each, which is each other's name, um, besides muttering and mumbling and kind of uh, gibberish. But um, So we don't really have a dig at them in a big way, but there's some elements to the show that I don't really want to give away that are sort of outside of the room or outside of their house that is definitely playing on... I would say that generation, well, all of us, but um, I don't want to give too much away about sure. the show. Yeah. I think also we discussed a lot that baby boomers right now are a very easy target and it would be very, you know, we could just Make jokes insult them. them and that, that actually wouldn't be very interesting. I mean, you know, if it was just tipped the scale so far that that's all it was. It, it would be you know, easy to I, become lazy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think for us we wanted to sort of get inside where, you know, they've got this world that's changing around them and they can't really, you know, I watch what my dad's going through now looking at the people that he listened to in the media that he thought was real, that, that were really wonderful are now crestfallen and, you know, there are people... There's a, there's a lot of fallen heroes. Yeah, yeah, and there's kind of... Rightly so. Yeah, pe- people, um, you know, we've got things in our family to do with gender and sexuality and there's a lot of kind of wow, what is going on in the world? How do I even make sense of this? And I think Jim and Barb are a bit like that. Like, they don't really understand the world that's changing around them fully, you know? Yeah. Now, in terms of the world around you, obviously, as I've mentioned, uh, people may know you best as uh, De Rotten Puncta, but you've made other styles of work as well. I mean, Claire, kind of clowning has been kind of a, uh, a key thread through some of the, the work that you've done on stage. Daniel, you've taken a more kind of personal slant uh, with some of your work, like uh, uh, The Orchid and the Crow. I'm intrigued to see what happens when those different schools of thought and, and making of theatre and making of art kind of collide, kind of Tell us about that process of bringing 
in your own ideas and passions to to this show? Has it ended up an amalgam equally of of each of you, or has it kind of uh, been a, a more one sided creative process? Oh, it's definitely amalgamation of 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 both of us and the whole team. Like you know, Peter Bronwyn Pringle, Ben Hens. Like there's a whole team of people who've come together to make this show. But I will say, I think when I met Dan, he was attracted to me because he'd seen the business, which was all non-verbal physical comedy. He saw the concert, he loved it. And we were making a show with Raucous, that's how we became friends. But he kind of dragged me into the musical music world. I'd never played drums, I wasn't used to singing into microphones, I'd never song written. So that was a huge learning curve for me and quite uncomfortable for quite a while, just in terms of being so bad at playing the drums <laughs> and, and then trying to make that funny, like kind of embracing that. And now I guess, yeah, I, I haven't certainly haven't dragged. Dan very willingly has wanted to make a non-verbal physical comedy. So in a way I'm going back to my absolute, com- well, not comfort zone, I'd say, but... Back to your roots. Something that I think, yeah, something I've been doing for a long, long time. And... I will, there is a song in the show, Richard. But um, spoilers. I think that will be. I think that will be funny for anyone who has seen Dear Rotten Punk to, to see the song, hear the song that is in the show. Yeah. So I feel like we. It's a real blending of our skills, really. And that, I mean, I think that's always been a strength of mine and Dan's. You know, Dan's always been much more the musical director when we're working in Dear Rotten Punk because that's he's been in bands playing. That's all he did since he was fifteen. And and mine is more about physical comedy and timing. And then obviously having Peter in the room, you've got someone even, you know, very accomplished there who's, you know, on it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a real blending of lots of things. I think also we have really similar taste. Yeah, what we like watching as well. And, you know, we first came out of, like, being big fans of that um, uh, last laugh, big gig kind of scene. That's Trier String Barkus and... Magda Sabansky and Lena Woodley and, you know, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, like they were, you know, huge heroes. And and then also things before that, like, um, uh, you know, Young Ones and um, uh, Faulty Towers, Goons, you know, like Lucille Ball. ridiculous Just, physical yeah. comedy. And, yeah, so I think this is in in our kind of oeuvre of, our, our, you know, and our, our taste, you know. yeah. In a way, it's kind of, um, I'd say it's an old-fashioned farce, but in a way, it kind of, you know, it's its a ridiculous... Yeah. I think our producer said it's bonkers. It is. It's really stupid. <laughs> it's yeah. a really, really stupid show. Um, Shout but, out to you know, Laura, the producer. There was a lot of listening. laughter <laughs> last night, thankfully, because otherwise it would have been two people being stupid for an hour for no reason, but uh, luckily people were laughing, so... It's, and it also kind of follows our rules of wanting to be able to have fun on stage. Yeah. That's a definite... So Dan and I have this... Um, we have a bit of a manifesto. But the main rule is if there's anything we're not enjoying on stage in our show, we have to work to change the show so that we're both having a good time at all times. Because, sh- you know, sometimes you end up doing a show hundreds of times. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of your life. <laughs> yeah. The anniversary is on now at 45 Downstairs. It previewed last night. There's another preview tonight and officially opening tomorrow. Then it runs through until the 21st of February. If you've not been to 45 Downstairs before, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, uh, and the website 45downstairs.com. Now, Claire and Dan, before I let you go, I'm talk to us about making these characters, about making Jim and Barb. You've had plenty of time to develop them, to make them, to flesh them out, I guess, to make them real because comedy... What's the old saying? Uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. So there's 
presumably a tragic element to these characters, which you've allowed to grow and develop and exaggerate to become the comedic uh, characters we're going to see on stage. But talk to us just a little bit about making Jim and Barb real so that they're not just two-dimensional caricatures of baby boomers from Baldwin, as you said earlier. Yeah, well, well for, for my, my grandparents were, I mean, I had, I'm thinking of my nanny and my bampa. My bampa was very grumpy. He, I mean, my character in the business is based on him. Uh, and he was a real loner and a bit of an outlier. Uh, whereas my nan was very social, um, but they, but she was very, she would berate him all the time. And his one constant catchphrase whenever he take my sister and I out shopping in Baneswell in Newport in Wales was, "I'm always in the doghouse." And he, whenever he would be sent out with a shopping list, he knew that he would come back with all the wrong things, and um, and then there would be trouble, and uh, and he would predict that, and it would happen uh, like clockwork, and. And um, but they absolutely adored each other. Um, but they would. It was hard to tell sometimes. You know, it was just really they would just snipe at each other all the time and quite viciously. Um, and also, I think a little bit of my my parents now are quite elderly, and um, my dad's got a lot of health stuff going on that I won't say. Maybe some of it's in the show. And my lovely mother has got advanced dementia, and so. Part of that was also influencing me of when partner notices that their partner is changing and not quite understanding why. But and in that in that moment, well, sort of in the time where it's just frustrating and they're not realising, well, actually, it's a medical condition, but no one's really caught up with that. And they're just thinking that they're a bit strange and weird and uh, forgetful or grumpy, where actually, you know, with my mum, it was the early, early onset dementia, which happened, you know, she was young, like late 50s, early 60s, and now has very advanced dementia. So I think those things, you know, have happened in our lives that are real, that are present now, and sad, um, are there. And then that spirit of Dan and I wanting to make people laugh. And, you know, that this, this happens to all of us, we are all going to get old, we're all going to get frail and um we're going to watch other people go through that as well so it's sort of about i don't know maybe celebrating it and kind of diving into it and i don't want to say that we're sending it up and mocking it because i feel like i'm really in it um with my family and i feel like in a way i just want to i don't know i don't know if yeah celebrate it and get into it and um see it and 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 laugh at it Mm. yeah there's also, and love it. Yeah. And as much as we do try to, um, we talk a lot about these stories and, and you know, people who are important to us. Um, but in the end, it is a game of, um, you know, Tom and Jerry or Roadrunner or, you know, it, it is like a live cartoon in some ways. So there are, you know, serious issues, but, it, it, you know, it's Claire and I uh, playing a game on stage of uh you know annoying the shit out of each other and like for fun you know yeah i'm looking forward to seeing it i'm coming along tomorrow night so and really looking forward to it just to be back at 45 downstairs again after such a long break as well and i'm sure for the two of you it must be a delight to be back on stage in front of a, a live audience again as well yeah it's amazing i mean everyone's got a mask on but you can see their eyes and um you know we could say hello with our masks on at the end of the show but I think everyone I mean all the company all the team around us are so excited to be in a venue and the venue is excited to be <laughs> for us to be here oh Richard we should say that when you go to the website it does look like the whole season is pretty much sold out but they are releasing a handful of tickets every day 
um, apparently, and there will be more shows going on sale, more matinees, and possibly a late show next Friday. So it it looks like a lot of the seasons ex- it says exhausted on the you know sold out, but um, you you can still get a ticket. Mm, fantastic and uh, great to see that there is the hunger for the show, uh, such that it's already almost sold out, except for a handful of tickets uh, for shows and new shows being announced. As we said, uh, go to forty five downstairs dot com to book to see the anniversary, which is on now until the twenty first of February, uh, and uh, so that website again forty five downstairs dot com like the venue. It's itself located at 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. If you need uh, wheelchair or disability access, contact the theatre in advance so that they can arrange that for you. I've been chatting with uh, Daniel Tobias and Claire Bartholomew, the co-creators of The Anniversary at 45 Downstairs. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Lovely to chat to you both. And uh, I very much look forward to seeing you in the flesh tomorrow. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, if you've ever been to a gallery, any pretty much any major gallery, you may have noticed, for example, if you're at the NGV, that uh, some works uh, have been purchased with the, the support of, say, the Felton bequest. Bequests are a significant way for uh, galleries to enrich their collections. And in 1973, uh, it turns out that it's not just galleries, but uh, universities as well. In 73, the University of Melbourne uh, received a significant bequest from Sir Russell and Lady Grimwade, uh, a Turak property, Meganya, its contents and considerable funds, including a large collection of books and artworks. Uh, the results of that collection have now been published in a book called Pride of Place, exploring the Grimwade collection uh, by Elisa Bunbury, who joins us on the line now. Elisa, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Richard. It's great to be here. In terms of uh, this, the, the, the bequest itself that was made to Melbourne Uni in 1973, how significant was it in the grand scheme of things? Because I know that, uh, in, to put it into context, the Alfred Felton bequest at the NGV suddenly gave the NGV the acquisitory power, uh, well, more acquisitory power than the National Gallery or the Tate Gallery in London. So clearly bequests can be hugely significant. How significant was this one? It's an interesting question to pair the, the Felton bequest and the Grimwade bequest together because Alf, uh, Russell Grimwade knew Alfred Felton well. Uh, he, uh, Alfred Felton was his father's business partner. So they could be original um, pharmaceutical and uh, chemical businesses that they ran as Felton Grimwade was the source of both streams of funding. Uh, the Felton bequest is uh, considerably more significant financially. Uh, it uh, transformed the NGV and yes, if you look around the NGV, you see the Felton bequest credit line everywhere. The Grimwade collection is much more focused than that. It's a very personal collection, so it is the collection as opposed to the funds, which is the Felton bequest. Uh, the collection of um, household contents that they gave, archives, but the core of the collection is uh, Russell's interest in Australian colonial settler art and, um, and, and historical material, and that's the core that, that was given, plus, as, I, as you mentioned, significant funds, plus the house, which was subsequently sold, and those funds are reinvested, and that money can, uh, uh, annually 
um, contributes significantly to the universities to this day. Now, one of the things that's intriguing about the Grimwade collection, to my eyes, is that it's predominantly, uh, or significantly at least, works on paper, but one of the most outstanding works is a rare example of a painting that was collected by the Grimwades, the the work Bushrangers from 1852. Why is this work so significant and why uh, is it in some ways the outlier compared to the rest Mm -hmm. of the collection? Yes, it's an an interesting uh, question. Again, I like um, that you've picked on that. Russell did focus mostly on works on paper. Uh, He talked about collecting books and prints, particularly relating to early Melbourne. But the William Strutt painting was actually painted in 1887, quite significantly, after the event occurred in 1852. So he's harking back uh, long after he'd left left, uh, Melbourne and returned to England. So he used his his time in Melbourne to continue these sort of a very grand narrative painting um, of an event that actually occurred um, uh, near St Kilda, uh, where... Uh, people were held up by bushrangers in 1852. Russell um, often seemed to find um, things that engaged him and he latched onto, and he came across an old image of this this painting um, in an old magazine, and he literally sent set people in London to find and locate this painting so that he could buy it and bring it back to Australia. It is the... uh, it really is the only grand painting that he nineteenth uh, century painting that he acquired for his colonial collection, um, and he brought it back personally from uh, London, but died only a few years, uh, a few months after it came to Melbourne in eighteen uh, nineteen fifty five. But it's a wonderful painting. It's an absolute highlight, not only of the Grimwade collection, but actually of the University of Melbourne's art collection altogether. And on the subject of bushrangers, perhaps equally significantly, is um, uh, a rare, I believe, complete set of, uh, of photographs of the aftermath of the, the, the Kelly Gang's siege of Glenrowan. This, this book is uh, it was one that I've edited. It has over 40 contributors. Uh, and one of the contributors was uh, Ken Orchard, who studies the work of J.W. Lint, an early photographer. And Lint was really an early press photographer. He and four other um, photographers dashed up to Glenrowan at the time of the siege of the of the Glenrowan Inn. Uh, Lint missed out on photographing Ned Kelly. Uh, he might have actually seen him being loaded onto the train to come to Melbourne, but uh, didn't have his camera set up in time. Uh, but the photographs, the six photographs that are in the Grimwade collection, uh, as far as we know, are the only surviving copies from that time, from the 1880s. All other versions and, uh, were redone in the 20th century. So, so, so the research for this book has actually brought to light you know, really fascinating re- um, new information and allow us to to reinterpret this material. Uh, is that new information for you as well? Because you've been the Grimwade Collection curator mm-hmm. at the university since 2017, so I, I, you would obviously know the collection intimately, but through editing other people's works, through conversations about what works to highlight and so forth in the book, did you yourself kind of... Were there new discoveries for you? I am learning all the time, all the time, and it's so much fun. It's just... It's one of the great joys of being at a university collection is that there's such a, a diverse range of academics and experts, uh, as well as people external to the university that we can call upon. So I'm learning, you know, every day. And there's a lot of the collection I still don't know. And uh, a lot of this material, we want it to be re-examined in, in a, with 21st century eyes. I mean, it is 
a lot, you know, it's depicting colonial settler imagery, uh, which is really troubling when you look at it in, uh, you know, by today's standards. So we want it to be reinvestigated, to be explored, to have people from different points of view and different backgrounds looking at this material so that it's still relevant now as it very much is. Now, talk to us about that not uh, revisiting the collection through contemporary eyes, but perhaps kind of how we reevaluate work that uh, work that is historically significant on a number of levels, such as I don't know early documentations of of Australian landscapes early in the colonial period, but simultaneously knowing that those landscapes are being destroyed by the very same people who are documenting, and it, it creates a significant kind of tension when we view such works today. Yeah. It does, and that tension is something that, that should be looked at and, and should, be, um, should be assessed. And we know history is not fixed. History is, is always evolving because it's up to, uh, you know, new, new eyes, new interpretations, new information coming to light. So, for example, um, you know, in a lot of the books uh, that are in the Grimway the, the, uh, Library, the book part of the collection, you know, there's a lot of information there about Indigenous culture, First Nations um, interactions, uh, activities, uh, and they were, you know, often misrecorded at the time or misunderstood, but uh, people, particularly First Nations academics and cultural advocates, return to that material and hopefully... You know, can can correct mistakes, but also uh, there are cases where um, you know new information is coming to light that has been lost through the you know through uh, the impact of colonisation over the last two hundred and fifty years. It's interesting too the way we even how a single artwork our views of it will change over time, and the way we look at it will change as well. I'm thinking, for example, of the there's a, a panorama of Port Jackson, for example, uh, uh, that's kind of reproduced in the book, uh, and. Now I might look at it and I look pay more attention to the landscape itself rather than the kind of the early uh, kind of domestication that's uh, in the foreground of the painting, which includes even a tamed kangaroo in a garden, for example. Whereas when that artwork was being looked at at the time it was created or in years afterwards, presumably it would have been seen as a sign of uh, I don't know British dominance over the landscape. Look, we've we've even tamed the kangaroo. Absolutely. A lot of those images, of course, were, you know, they were being produced in, in England and elsewhere. Um, there was a, you know, real fascination with Australia. But at the same time, it's part of the whole, you know, British imperial domination. So it also fits into what was happening in other colonies around the world. But to, it, was, it was certainly, a, a, those images show, a, we've, we're here, we're building houses, look, our convicts aren't, um, you know, if the convicts even appear at all, they're frequently invisible. You often have Indigenous um, figures who are often inserted in a quite token way to, to show, well, to depict a lack of violence, even though we know there was violence occurring at the time. Um, but to look again at that imagery and to, to analyse it in, it was, you know, it was propaganda as much as, as much as anything else. And it was, you know, very much a British point of view. And so exploring that is, you know, uh, again, as we assess that now and have different understandings is, is sometimes challenging, but I, I think always interesting. I can imagine it would be challenging, given that my understanding is that Russell Grimwade, there's a phrase in the book that he venerated the colonisers. Yeah, uh, which is very typical of his time. And uh, so it has been interesting looking at this and how do you, how do you explore that now? 
Um, you know, he was collecting in the first first half of the 20th century. He was born in 1879, so Melbourne was only 44 years old when he was born. You know, he's very closely connected to that early time, and he thought that that uh, that early history, that early settler history, was being might have might have been lost, and that's part of the reason why he started collecting. And uh, you know, what was once venerated may now often be disputed uh, and disagreed with. Yeah, there's there's much room to interpret that and to to re-examine it. Uh, there's also uh, plenty of room in the book just to admire the artworks in the collection itself. It's a beautifully kind of designed uh, book uh, published by Melbourne University Press, uh, hardback, retailing for um, fifty nine ninety nine. Of course, there's also an e-book. Uh, Alisa, as the editor of the book, who do you envisage as the core audience? Is this something that you think will be primarily read by an academic audience who are interested in colonial art, colonial Australia? Do you see it more perhaps as a, a more kind of general book for art lovers? Generally, look, I, I hope it I hope it appeals to a general audience, uh, very much so. Uh, I think there is new information there for uh, for academics. Um, I think the the breadth of responses that we have, I think, uh, is approaching this material in a way unlike some of the more art historically focused books that I've certainly been involved in in the past. Um, but, uh, for example, a friend last night told me that she bought herself a copy of the book and she hasn't been able to read it because her husband has taken it over. So I was really <laughs> pleased, pleased to hear that. So, you know, I think it's a very, I think it's an accessible book. I mean, it's done in a handbook format, you know, images and short entries, five chapters on different aspects of Australian uh, settler uh, history. Um, and one of those aspects is about uh, Grimrose's uh, keen interest in botany as well. He advocated very strongly for a um, you know, care for the Australian uh, uh, Australian bush and through that the Australian climate. He was quite prescient in his comments about, for example, protecting um, our waterways, uh, protecting our forests because they they are the ones that protect our waterways. Um, in the 1930s, he's talking about the the, the uh, decline of the water in the Murray. You know, it's really prescient. So, so in some ways, he, um, you know, his attitudes to venerating the, uh, you know, the, the the white male achievers, and I put that in quotation marks, is one thing. But he's also looking forward to how you how how Australia will develop. So I hope it appeals to a wide variety of people, and as you say, it's highly illustrated. So it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's very much a, a you know an attractive book to to browse through as well. Absolutely, it is Pride of Place. Exploring the Grimwade Collection is the name of the book, published by uh, Melbourne University Press and available in hardcover for fifty nine ninety nine. Uh, ebook as uh, at thirty eight ninety nine. Uh, and yes, Melbourne University Publishing. You can jump online and find copies of it, and I'm sure it will be available in all good independent bookshops and possibly even some of the less good non-independent bookshops as well. Elisa Bunbury, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 